little glass of water. Who's feeling they're sitting beside the seaside at the moment? Does anyone recognise that piece of music? I probably should have let it play a bit longer. It's the theme tune for... There you go. It's the theme tune for Desert Island Discs, uh, which is, if you don't know, it's the longest-running radio show in the world. It's had more than 3,000 episodes over 75 years, and in that time, only four hosts. Um, If you don't know, the idea is fairly simple. Each week, a guest is invited on to discuss which eight records they would save from the waves if they were shipwrecked on a desert island. And then those records provide a structure around which they talk about their lives. And everyone from prime ministers to archbishops to academics and soap stars have appeared on it. Now, you'd have to be a particularly sad and delusional individual to spend hours working out what your own list of tracks are to take on the island if you never had a chance of going. Uh, And clearly, I'm not like that, but it's good to be prepared. And if fame and fortune ever do come knocking at my door and Kirsty Young gives me a call... I just so happen to have my list of tracks ready to go. And it's a good eclectic mix. We've got a bit of 1970s uh, prog rock, some modern classical, a couple of more recent songs, and uh, a little bit of Christian music. And I suspect if, you, if I went through that list, it would simply identify me as a middle-class, uh, middle-aged white man from southern England. Um, but, when I'm, um, but as fans of the show know, at the end, Kirsty. Kirsty Young will always ask her guest if they could save just one record from the waves, which one would it be? And when I'm sitting in the BBC studios in front of Kirsty and she asks me that question, I know immediately which one I would save. It's a song called When I Hear the Praises Start by a man called Keith Green. Now, if uh, Pippa, my wife, was in uh, this uh, congregation this morning, uh, she'd be groaning aloud already. She'd say, it's not going on about Keith Green again. And um, she's right, I do have a sad fixation uh, about the man and his music. I managed to quote him in in many of my sermons. Um, His recording career only actually lasted five years. He wrote just 72 songs before his death in a plane crash at the age of 28. But his lyrics have probably influenced my understanding of and my relationship with God more than any other Christian writer. There are a number of themes that underpin his writing. But one of the major ones is understanding the balance between what, as Christians, we often refer to as grace and works. Between understanding that our salvation is complete and perfect entirely through what God has done for us, with no input from ourselves at all other than to just say thank you. With the fact that God still calls us to work out that salvation by living lives that are different and holy and marked by service and obedience and sacrifice. And through all his songs, I believe he sums it up best in this one. There's there's so much in it, and over the 35 years I've been listening to his songs, the last two lines of the chorus have had a really profound impact on my understanding of God's grace and my response to it. They're, They're really simple, and they're written as God speaking to us. And God says this. He says, to me, you're only holy. Nothing that you've done remains, only what you do for me. Nothing that you've done remains, only what you do for me. As Patrick reminded us two weeks ago uh, from the beginnings of Roman 8, 
There's no longer any condemnation from God for any of us if we love Jesus. Not only does he love me, incredibly, he sees me as perfect, as holy. He's wiped away all of the things I've done wrong. And then last week, Richard was speaking from the end of chapter 8 and was explaining that we are totally safe and secure in that relationship. We can have total confidence that absolutely nothing can make us lose that love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No matter how many times I screw up, get things wrong, lose my temper, whatever, it'll be gone. It'll be forgiven and forgotten. God is saying to me, you're only holy, and nothing that you've done wrong remains. But Keith Green's song goes further. On the odd occasion, you see, when on occasion I actually get something right and do something for God, he delights in it. He'll never forget it. He'll remember it forever, and he'll celebrate it with me. Nothing remains except only what I do for him. And truly grasping that is totally and utterly liberating. It was, it's a complete win-win. If I manage to do something good for God, he will love and delight in it. But if I do something wrong, he will forgive it. In fact, he will forget it and move on. And for me, really grasping that helps take away so much of the guilt for every time I fail, but also empowers me to just occasionally get something right and do something right. And I think this is what Paul is saying at the beginning of chapter 12 of Romans. He's just spent the first 11 chapters building up a full picture of God's amazing grace for us. Of how, as in the title of this sermon series, our faith is assured. Nothing that we've done wrong remains. But now at the beginning of chapter 12, he turns to our response to that amazing grace. Our response to that grace as we begin to look at what we can do for him. And there's an awful lot in these, in these next eight verses. But this morning I want to focus on just three things. Firstly, what it says about our attitude to God. Reminding us again of the secure base of our relationship and what that's built upon. And then look at our attitude to ourselves and those around us. To look at what Paul says about how we should think about ourselves and how we relate to others. And then thirdly, as the title of the sermon this morning says, to look at our attitude to service and sacrifice. You know, given that secure base, given our relationship with others, what does that mean in terms of what we give back to God? So if we turn to the passage, we'll see that Paul starts it with a great big therefore. Romans is Paul's sort of major theological letter, and it's his most complete statement of the good news, of the gospel. And he's just spent 11 chapters carefully setting out his arguments, helping us understand the holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, the challenge of judgment, and our own wretched position before him, but then explain the reality of God's love and grace that transcend all of that. And if we've read our way through and been paying attention, we'd now understand that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And so he gets to the beginning of chapter 4 and says, therefore, in view of all of that, in view of God's mercy, let's now think what it means for the way we live. How does our response to God's mercy impact what we do 
and not just what we believe. I spoke a few weeks ago about forgiveness on the Lord's Prayer, not at this service, but at the other ones. And there I talked about how the Lord's Prayer was not really a prayer for justification, but it's a prayer about living our lives as God wants us to live. It wasn't so much about our eternal position, it's about our journey from now to there. And that's the point that Paul's got to in Romans. We've been hearing about our eternal position, it's secure. God's poured out his grace upon us. Paul is saying, God has done all this stuff to you, all this stuff for you, and it's all from God and none of it's from you. But now you've got the rest of your life ahead of you. How are you going to travel over that period from now to the end? So even though you don't have to, even though it's not going to make him love you anymore, don't you think you might want to think about giving something back to him to say thank you? Wouldn't you like to live a life that pleases him? That's what Paul's trying to get to here. And so he launches into this wonderful chapter on what Christian lives could look like in response to God's mercy, in gratitude to God's grace. The theologian F.F. Bruce uh, sums it up. He says, in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. You know, the root of what we believe is the understanding of God's grace for us. But the root of what we do is our gratitude for that. It's sad and strange that so many people see Christianity as almost the exact opposite as that, as being driven by guilt. Uh, The caricature of the Church of England is of a group of fairly miserable people who feel guilty about everything they do, criticise everyone else's behaviour for being wrong, and are terrified of ever enjoying themselves. And if we're honest, sometimes we might feel a little bit like that. We do live a little bit in fear of what God or other people might think of us. We can feel guilty for not doing enough or for doing it wrong. We feel obliged, pushed to do the right Christian thing to make God love us a bit more. But Paul's point is we don't need to feel like that. We have freedom to do what we want, not an obligation to make God love us and to earn our way to heaven. If we truly understand all that God's done for us, we will feel gratitude for his grace, not guilt for our failings. And as we've been saved into a world which is defined by love and not by fear. We live in a world which is about freedom and gratitude and love and not about fear and obligation and guilt. Living in a world defined by guilt and fear is frankly exhausting. It really impacts our relationship with God in so many ways. I just want to pick up one of those in passing this morning and just think a little bit about how it impacts our attitude to repentance, to properly saying sorry to God when we do get things wrong, because we all do. If you think about it, guilt uh, is, is all about a feeling that we've crossed some kind of line of acceptable behavior. We've gone beyond a point of good behavior. To, to use an old-fashioned Christian word, word we've trespassed. We've crossed into the wrong territory. And we can feel bad about that and worry that it will impact God's love for us. But the problem is, if we approach our Christian life like that, it moves our focus from being on God to being on that line. Trying to find the level where we're just about good enough 
to get by, where God will think, well, at least he's tried or she's tried hard enough. And the trouble is, we don't really know where that line is, so we have to guess, and we start comparing ourselves to others. You know, at least I'm better than Johnny, or if only I could be as good as Sarah. And we never really know if we've crossed the line or not, or if we're good enough or not. We have no security in our relationship. And that leads us in a world where we're constantly trying to justify our actions before God, where we struggle to be honest with him, about what we've done wrong and what we fear and what we feel because we're a little bit frightened that he might just not like us. But the lesson from Paul's letter to the Romans is that actually, do you know what? We were born the wrong side of the line. We started the wrong side of that line and everything we do just keeps us the wrong side of that line. In fact, the line is so far away we can't even see it. And the only way we can get to the right side of it is for God to pick us up and take us there himself. And that's what Paul's been on about for 11 chapters. Because once there, once we know we're the right side of that line, then repentance, saying sorry to God, is not driven by guilt. It's not driven by fear or an obligation that we've got to do it. We've got to go through a certain process of religion to please God. It's driven by love. It's driven by a desire to restore our loving relationship, knowing that we've probably bruised it a bit by our behavior. And when we see our sin and our repentance in that light, then we can be able to be completely open and honest with God. As the writer of the Hebrews says, we can then approach the throne of grace with confidence, with our heads held high, looking God, as it were, in the, in, in, eye to eye. Because our repentance then is a positive and a wonderful release. It's affirming the relationship of love between us and our Father. And it's not about a bit of penalty of excusing and rationalizing and blaming. To me, you're only holy. Nothing that you've done remains. Does that make sense? See, Paul's starting point for everything we do is God's mercy. He says, don't look at ourselves, look at God. See that God's mercy triumphs. It triumphs over sin, triumphs over guilt, over fear, and over obligation. He told us in chapter 9 of Romans that our salvation depends not on man's desires or effort, but on God's mercy. He goes further in that same chapter, in verse 23, to say, God's very purpose in all of this is to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. We are the objects of God's mercy. And as we've heard over the last two weeks and over this series, that no matter what we do, no matter how good or bad we are, we can never lose that. So I think Paul's tried to be really, really clear. Our security in God is absolutely rock solid. So he says, then how then does that impact our attitude to ourselves and our attitude to others? And in verse 3, he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to you. So remember, we've got our nice solid, solid base, and now we're going to look at how Paul is challenging us to live a life beyond that. This verse is not entirely straightforward. And at first glance, it seems to say we should think about ourselves a little bit in accordance of how much faith we have. If, if we've got lots of faith, we're okay. Uh, if we're struggling a bit with doubt, then maybe we're not. 
but then we're back in a world where we seem to be judged on our own behavior. And I don't know about you, if, if that were true, I'd be in big trouble. But this goes against everything that Paul's been saying in Romans up to date. So instead, I think, I think Paul is actually encouraging us just to get a fair and proper perspective on who we are. Don't think of ourselves too highly, but also don't do ourselves down. He said we should assess ourselves clearly and calmly based on the reality of our relationship with God. Notice he doesn't say here be humble or see others as better than ourselves. Instead, just think straight about ourselves, neither too high nor too low. And by doing this, it will help us serve God and others better. And we should do this, in verse 3, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of us. It literally translates as a measure of faith he has given us. This doesn't mean to say he's given some more or some less. The Greek word is, is metron, and it means sort of like standard. It's a bit like in Nelson's time, each sailor would get his standard measure of rum, presumably to help him through the day. Uh, in the same way, God's each of us has given each of us enough faith to save us, to make us secure. And that is how we are to measure ourselves. So when we look at ourselves, we can and should acknowledge that we are special. Uh, on the musical theme, to quote from the 1980 album Zionic Bonds by Moral Support, a song which wouldn't quite make my Desert Island discs, um, there was a song on that which simply said, I am special, I am human. I am special simply because I am human. I'm created and saved by a loving God. He's made each of us holy and perfect. Each one of us has a measurable value. But none of the value comes from us. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're utterly dependent on God's kindness and mercy for our value. And we are just one of billions whom God loves. You are special, but you're no more special than anyone else around you. I have two children, and they are both very, very special to me. But neither is more special than the other. God has billions of children, and each one is very, very special to him. But none are more special than the others. And that leads us to the second thing Paul talks about. He says we're also, as, whilst we should look up ourselves you know, equally with others, we're also part of a body. Each of us is different, and each of us has different gifts. Now today, I, I'm not going to have a chance to go through all these gifts themselves. Um, defining, discerning, using gifts are all, are all long sort of sermons in themselves. But what I will say is that the list that's here is by no means a complete list. Paul gives further lists, uh, not only in Romans, but in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and elsewhere. But even putting those together, it's not a complete list of the gifts that God gives us. But the thing to remember about gifts is that they are just that, gifts. They're not earned and they're not deserved. They're not a reason for pride. If you think you've got impressive gifts, you shouldn't think of yourself as better than others. Nor if you feel your gifts are not as impressive as others or they're not showy, should you think of yourself as worse. They're not a measure of holiness or of Christian maturity. Listening to me talking, you're probably fairly clear that I, I don't have a gift of teaching or of leadership or anything like that. But even if I did, that would not make me any more special than someone who has a gift for service or for administration or for caring or for all sorts of other less upfront, standing on stage things. If we really want to measure how we compare, then don't look at gifts, look at our fruit. 
you know, how, that's how we grow in our relationship with God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But of course, comparison is not the game we're playing. The game is actually how do we respond to God's grace. And to remember that all that remains is what we do for him. And this is where Paul sets us a challenge. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, in response to God's mercy, Paul urges us to do two things. He says, offer our bodies as living sacrifices and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And those are both pretty challenging things. The phrase living sacrifices is actually um, taken from the temple in, in uh, Greek times, in Israeli times. Paul is referring to how worshippers would take their very best animal without blemish to be a whole burnt offering. The animal would be burnt totally to represent complete consecration and devotion to God. And in doing this, the worshipper was doing two things. He was thanking God for everything that he had been given, but he was also committing to give anything and everything back to God to say thank you, to say that he was willing to obey God whatever the personal cost. And Paul is saying we should do the same thing with our bodies. Now to Romans, whom Paul was writing, that would be quite shocking. They, they have a stoic philosophy which clearly def- differentiated between what you thought and what you did. They saw the, the soul, as it were, as pure and the body as impure. The body was something bad that pulled you down. In fact, they would rather graphically refer to themselves as being a little soul burdened by a corpse. But Paul's already made it really clear in Romans that he didn't believe this. In chapter 3, he talks about how our, you know, how our rotten interior shows itself, reveals itself through what we do, through our bodies, by what we say and what we do. There's no distinction for him. And therefore, in the same way, Christian sanctity, you know, getting more like God, growing more like God, shows itself in what we do, in what we say, how we speak with love, listen with care, embrace and support the lonely and the unloved. As good evangelicals, we often talk about giving our hearts to God. But Paul seems to be pretty clear that we should go a bit further than that and give our whole bodies, that we should lay our bodies down and keep laying them down as complete, whole, living sacrifices to God. John Stott sums it up by saying, No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. The second thing Paul's asks is for us to not conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We don't just need to lay down our bodies, but to lay down our minds, to allow God to radically change our mindset and our outlook on the world. The word for transform is metamorpho, and Paul only uses it one other time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, we, he says there, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. This is not just, therefore, about outward actions, but about an inner transformation to become ever more like God in our very deepest being, 
that will transform how we behave, how we think, and how we relate to God. And although he doesn't say it here, this can only come about by engaging deeply with what he says in his word and by allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. Well, I don't know about you, but when I hear about that level of commitment that Paul's proposing, I can find it pretty daunting. And if I'm honest, a bit unrealistic in looking at my own life. You know, I've been doing this Christianity thing for 38 years now, and I'm still a very long way from looking like the kind of person that Paul is suggesting I be. The truth is, though, that God, through Paul, is not setting out this vision to, of life to frighten us, to push us guiltily towards us. He's setting it out as a vision for us to head towards. If we put it in the, in the context of the previous 11 chapters of Romans, we put it in the context of a totally loving, safe, and secure relationship with God. In my old Bible, I have a few things jotted down in the, in, on the inside covers to try and encourage me. And one of them says something like this. It says, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more than he already does. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Or Tim Keller uses the analogy of a father watching his son play baseball. Whether his son plays well or badly will not in any way affect his love for his child. But if his son hits a home run, he will delight in it and celebrate with his son. And his son will delight and celebrate in his father's joy. That's how it is for us with God. No matter what we do, if we've given our lives for him, he will only see us as holy. Nothing that we've done wrong remains, and nothing that we will do wrong will remain. It's forgiven and completely forgotten. But everything we do for him, no matter how small, will be remembered and will be a source of delight and celebration forever. And so take the vision that Paul is laying out for us here. Don't be intimidated or frightened by it, but rather be inspired by it, remembering that to God you're only holy. Nothing that you've done remains, only what you do for him. Amen.